We're going to be back in the Gospel of John this morning, so I invite you to turn in your Bibles to John chapter 2, and we are going to cover the second half of chapter 2. Last time we covered the first half of chapter 2, and we will be looking at verses 13 to 22. I was initially going to um, take us to verse 25, but I decided to trim it a little bit since we are doing communion this morning and for the sake of time. And there's a separate thought there I want us to be able to focus on uh, separate from what we're going to look at this morning. So verses 13 to 22 is going to be our text. Last time, we looked at verses 1 through 12, in which we read of Jesus' first sign. That is, his, his first display of supernatural power that testified to the fact that he was indeed the Christ, the Son of God. And it was at a wedding celebration in the town of Cana. When the wine had run out, he graciously turned over a hundred gallons of water into fine wine that could be graciously and generously served to the wedding guests for the remainder of the day's long feast. And as amazing as this first sign was, Jesus had done it very discreetly. It's possible that only his disciples who were there with him fully realized what he had done. You could say that this first sign was really for them. John tells us that by doing this sign, Jesus manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. That is, their faith in him that was already there, well, it it deepened. And as their perception of him and what he was capable of of, was taken to a whole new level. So their faith in him was deepened. John tells us in verse 12 that after the wedding, Jesus went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples And they stayed there for a few days. And this brings us to the passage we're going to look at this morning, in which we will see Jesus officially go public with his ministry as Israel's Messiah. What we have read so far has really been behind the scenes, so to speak. Jesus had been anointed for his ministry by the Holy Spirit right after his baptism, He had been tested in the wilderness for 40 days and had returned victorious. He had been announced by the herald whom God had sent, John the Baptist, and as a result, he had a handful of men join themselves to him as disciples. And then after attending the wedding celebration in Cana and then spending a few days in Capernaum, it was now time for Jesus to go to Jerusalem, the capital, because, as verse 13 says, the Passover was at hand. And although Jesus, in faithful obedience to the law of God, had gone up regularly to Jerusalem for the annual feasts each year, there were really three annual feasts that all of Israel was called to come up to Jerusalem, to the temple, to worship God together. He would have been doing that regularly each year 
as one who's perfectly and faithfully obeying the law of God. This time, however, was going to be his first visit to Jerusalem since the commencement of his messianic ministry. And it was on this particular occasion that he chose to manifest himself to the public. As you can tell from the title, there's going to be confrontation at the temple. So let's read our text first, verses 13 to 22. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen, and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When, therefore, he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Jesus chose to begin his public ministry by taking decisive and authoritative action in the temple that challenged the unrighteous religious establishment in Israel. He, along with his disciples, had gone up to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover, the holiday that commemorated God's deliverance of Israel from Egypt, and also to observe the seven-day feast of unleavened bread that immediately followed it. So you have the Passover, and immediately following that is a seven-day feast of unleavened bread. So you go up for the whole occasion. And it's commonly that whole week is referred to the Passover. And so he went up with his disciples to observe this time and worship. And John tells us in verse 14 what the scene in the temple was like when they got there. Verse 14, in the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. Now, first of all, the word that is translated as temple here, as well as in verse 15, is a word that refers more broadly to the whole temple precinct, the temple grounds with its buildings and enclosures not just to the sacred temple building itself. That was in the center. Ah, show pictures. I remembered my laser pointer. Okay. I want you to get a visual of this, and we've got some pictures, but this first of all is just the layout. 
Um, the, the edges here, this is a massive wall, an enclosure, and coming through the gates, these are the main gates, this is, and these are all columns, a portico or colonnades, all around there, and then coming out into the open area, you have these open courts. This large open court or plaza, it's the court of the Gentiles. So hey, you know what? Everyone can come on in here to worship the Lord, but and it's not in here, but there is actually a, a small barricade, kind of a lattice uh, barricade that walls off this main temple complex area because beyond that point, temples are not allowed in on penalty of death. So the Jews can go on up into here, and in this main court is the court of the women. Ladies are allowed to go into there with the men. But then we have another entrance into the inner court. And on the edges, you have the court of Israel, which basically the men can gather around. But on the inner court here is the court of the priests. Only those set aside for the service of God at the altar in and around the temple can be occupying this space. And right here is the temple itself. Now, there are modern models or depictions or renditions of what Herod's temple, this is referred to as Herod's temple, it was the, a reconstructed, expanded temple complex that he had built, massive, very impressive, and but it's since been destroyed. But they have people who have done a really good job of rebuilding models, so we can go to that next picture. To give you a depiction of, and this is one of those things that is called like a bigature, it's a miniature model, but it's, it's so massive, it's like it's not really miniature, is it? It's kind of big. Um, but people can walk around and actually kind of gaze down in it. But that gives you an idea. It kind of depicts like what that would look like. And up here, by the way, just so you know, this little castle-looking thing is a fortress. The Roman soldiers would stand guard here and be stationed to be able to monitor activities in here and out here and see people coming in the main gates, you know, to keep the peace under the threat of tyranny. And here's your court of the Gentiles. You see that? And then, again, there would be some kind of, it's hard to see here, but there is kind of a little barrier here to say, no Gentiles pass this point. And then Israel can go in here to worship, court of the women, and there's your temple. That's the temple, sacred temple building. The Ark of the Covenant now is housed in there. And so uh, there's one more to zoom in on that, on this thing. There we go. You can kind of picture a little more. Do you see that? So there's the temple itself. All this around here is additional, are additional structures to expand and uh, beautify the temple grounds. So that was a big building project. But the bottom line is you have the temple building itself and the temple complex, this whole area. All right? So when we read in verse 14 and 15, the word temple there is referring to, it's the word specifically referring to the temple complex. And what do we read? In the, in the temple he found. So they're not literally inside the temple court itself, the inner court in the building. He's in the temple complex. Where was this? Well, the market activity that Jesus observed was actually taking place in the, that big outermost court, which was what? It was the court of the Gentiles. Right here. So all around here you'd have this activity taking place in the court of the Gentiles, which, by the way, was the only place the Gentiles were allowed into to worship, come in like, okay, 
because we're here to worship God when there's a bunch of animals, and clearly it was very inconsiderate, shameful. Now, we can take that down. So you've got a visual, right? See it in your mind. Temple complex, court of the Gentiles, all these animals, money changers all around. Now, the services being provided here were actually very helpful services because a lot of people were traveling from distant lands. So you have pilgrims coming for these annual feasts. And so it's a very helpful service for them to have these animals available for them to purchase on location for their sacrificial offerings. You know, I don't know what it's like to travel with oxen or lambs by ship or across hundreds of miles. It probably wouldn't be easy. So certainly it was a convenience and a service to them to have on location rather than having to bring them from far away. It was also a very helpful service to have money changers who would exchange the men's foreign currency to change their coins uh, or to change their coins to larger or smaller denominations so that they could pay the annual temple tax. The guys had to do that. And guess what? If you're coming from other parts of the empire, they have different coinage. And this was more to have a consistency in the kind of coinage that was taken into the temple, more for the integrity of the coinage, the, the quality of the silver, the amount of silver in the coin. So you had money changers that did the math and did the exchange so they could offer a right payment in the temple tax. So these are help, helpful services. However, the great offense was that this was all taking place within the temple precincts. And the Jews had turned, those in charge had turned the, the place of worship really into a bustling market. To make things worse, they were likely exploiting the pilgrims by selling the animals at grossly inflated prices and charging exorbitant fees for changing that currency. And again, I mean, kind of like concerts and sporting events in our days. It's like, come on in, you can't bring anything in, and now you're stuck, you can't leave, and otherwise you can't come back in. Oh, you're hungry? Over there. A hot dog for $9. Right? I mean, that's just, so we understand what that's like. But this was a house of worship. Shameful. So three times a year, during the annual festivals, the holy convocations, Jewish pilgrims would come to the temple in Jerusalem, and for the local merchants and money changers, well, that was prime time for business, prime time for business. Now, the animal merchants and money changers were not operating independently. This wasn't like a free-for-all. It's like, hey, we should just go in the temple. Don't you think a lot more traffic? Let's just go do that. Uh, that didn't happen. So they weren't independent operators. They had to have permission to do business within the temple precincts. And that permission had to come from and benefit those who were in charge. The Sadducees. The Sadducees. They were the wealthy ruling class of Jews from the priestly tribe who were also the temple authorities. They were in charge. And the high priest, the chief priests, and the majority of the supreme ruling council in Jerusalem were all Sadducees, the very influential group 
or class of Jews. The animal merchants used to set up their stalls outside the city, across across the Kitron Valley on the slopes of the Mountain of Olives. So if you had the, the wall to the complex, there's this, it goes down into a valley and up on the Mount of Olives, and they would be over here. So they provide that service, but they wouldn't be in the temple. They used to be outside of the city, on the slopes of the Mount of Olives, which faced the east side of the temple. But with the approval of the Sadducees, and particularly with the approval of the powerful family of the high priest, Annas, whose son-in-law, Caiaphas, was serving as high priest at the time of the account we're reading, the animal merchants set up their stalls inside the temple complex. And it may have actually been more of an insistence rather than an approval from the Sadducees and the high priest's family in particular that drove the merchants to set up shop inside the temple complex. This arrangement would give these ruling officials more control over the market and more opportunity to profit themselves. And again, there's historical evidence documented that Annas, who was the high priest, now again, he was deposed, but his sons basically inherited the high priesthood, and Caiaphas was his son-in-law, so it's all in the family, really corrupt. There was a corrupt, shady business going on, abusing their authority in the temple. The animal merchants, along with the money changers, would most likely have, have had to pay a considerable rent and or percentage of their profits to the temple authorities, which would incentivize them to charge even steeper prices since they were seeking personal gain as well. And everybody's got to, you know, it's got to be worth it. So this whole operation would have been a principal source of income for all of them. And so again, think about the temple authorities. Think about the Sadducees. Those who, this is their turf, they have this set up here, and it is a prime source of business, of income for them. It was a considerable business, and it was also a considerable disruption to the worship of God at the temple. One commentator describes the scene in this way, I thought very colorfully, there in the actual court of the Gentiles, filling the temple with stench and filth, were penned whole flocks of sheep and oxen, while the drovers and pilgrims stood bartering and bargaining around them. There were the men with the wicker cages filled with doves and under the shadows of the arcade, formed by quadruple rows of Corinthian columns, sat the money changers with their tables covered with piles of various coins, while as they reckoned and wrangled in the most dishonest of trades, their greedy eyes twinkled with the lust of gain. Of gain. And this was the entrance court to the Most High. The temple officials and merchants and money changers had commercialized this important time of cor corporate worship for Israel. And they shamelessly ran this operation in the only place where God-fearing Gentiles were permitted to go to worship. This is the scene. This is the scene that Jesus beheld when he entered the temple with his disciples. It was a scene that he undoubtedly had observed numerous times. It's not like they just started doing this. And if he was a faithful Israelite, he would have been attending 
the annual feasts, and perfect obedience to the law. So he had observed this numerous times before when he had come up to Jerusalem for the annual feasts. And no doubt it disturbed him every time he saw it. In Luke's gospel, we get an account of him going with his parents when he's 12. And then from that point on, 13, 14, each year he would have been going. So for over a decade, and seeing this, whatever point that they had moved this in, this monstrosity was happening. No doubt it disturbed him every time he saw it. But now, now that his messianic ministry had begun, he was finally going to confront it and shut it down. We read in verse 15, and again, now you kind of understand how it all kind of went down. He didn't just go in and say, what in the world's going on here? It was like, all right now. I'm coming to the temple, and I'm going to have some business to attend to in my father's house. So he goes in, finds them all, and making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple. Just picture that. One man with a makeshift whip, and he drives them all out. Yeah, the sheep and oxen as well, the text says. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. So again, don't limit your perspective of Jesus to someone who was just sweet and soft gentle, never raised his voice, right? He was a righteous man. He was God in human flesh. He was holy, and he was zealous for the honor of God. He was a prophet. He was a king. He's the anointed one, the Messiah, the action our Lord took was swift and stern, but in no way was it sinful. He was the sinless Son of God, right? And he was, with holy indignation, taking righteous action against the wicked disruption of worship in his Father's house. His action was certainly abrupt, but it was not abusive. He exercised command, not cruelty. That whip he made was necessary to get those sheep and oxen moving and to drive them out of here. Get up out of here, right? Big dumb animals. A whip would be really handy, right? Cracking that whip. Get them moving on up out of there. And the merchants were driven on out as well. Not only because they would have been chasing after their animal, animals. There go your sheep. There go your cows. Oh, start running after them. Not only 
because of that, chasing after their animals, but also they also would not have been interested, I would guess, in going back towards the righteous man who was cracking a whip. And since the pigeons had to be kept in crates so they couldn't fly away, Jesus simply commanded the merchants selling them to take them away, right? So you see, he doesn't destroy property or cause people to lose their possessions. He is driving them out. The merchants go. The guys with the doves and the cages, he doesn't break those open. You know, you might see some gospel film depictions, and he's like, ah, and the birds just fly away. It's like, that, that's not good, actually. So he's like, get these out of here. So he tells people with pigeons, take these crates away. Take these things away. He was not damaging or causing any of them to lose any of their property. He was just driving them all out of the temple precincts. And as for the money changers, well, John says he poured out their coins and overturned their tables. After scrambling to pick up their coins, they all would have clearly gotten the message that it was time to pack up and go home. Don't think they would bother setting up their little stacks of coins after... He did that, and he's still going around doing that to others. One commentator, again, describes this scene uh, this way. He says, John's record here portrays the fiery zeal of Jesus, which came with such sudden and tremendous effectiveness that before this unknown man, who had no further authority than his own person and word, again, that's the perspective, this crowd of traitors and Changers who thought they were fully within their rights when conducting their business in the temple court fled pell-mell, that is, in a confused and disorderly manner like a lot of naughty boys. Scram! John tells us that Jesus said to those who were selling the pigeons, do not make my father's house a house of trade. More literally, stop making my father's house a house of business. In other words, do your business elsewhere. This is a house of prayer, of worship, where the living God is to be worshipped and made known. His house is not to be treated as common and exploited for personal gain. Yeah, we can think of uh, some churches that do just that, that are all about personal gain, running a smooth, slick operation and bringing in the cash. And a lot of times it also comes with a message about, hey, bring it on in, sow the seed, and God's going to bless you in this wonderful material way. You'll be rich just like your faithful pastor here. I have a jet. (laughs) So when we read, not a direct uh, connection to the temple, right? A church is not the same as the temple was, but it's still the place that God's people are called together to worship. Just think about how this applies today. Now, after Jesus' disciples saw him drive out all of the merchants and animals and money changers... And after they heard him refer to the temple as his father's house, we read in verse 17 that in that moment, 
they remembered the following statement from Scripture, zeal for your house will consume me. That statement is a quote from one of the Psalms written by King David. Now, according to Scripture, God identified David as a man after his own heart, and it was to David that God had made the covenant promise that from his royal line, he would raise up the Messiah to reign over Israel forever. The Messiah, being the descendant of David who would reign forever, was thus the ultimate son of David, and the disciples of Jesus, who was this Messiah disciples of Jesus began to see the similarities between him and King David, whom they knew through the scriptures. In Psalm 69, David cried out to God for deliverance from his enemies who hated him and would seek to destroy him because of his zeal for God's honor among his people. David said to God in this psalm, it is for your sake that I have borne reproach and dishonor has covered my face. And then in verse 9 of this psalm, the verse that is cited in our text, he said, For zeal for your house has consumed me, literally has devoured me. And the reproaches, the rest of that verse is, the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen upon me. Now, in David's day, which was before the temple was built, God caused his personal presence to dwell among his people in the tabernacle, which was called the house of the Lord. David's zeal for God's house was essentially his fervent devotion to seeing God honored among his people, especially in the place where he had manifested his personal presence among them and called them to worship before him. So it's not just there, it's really among his people in general, but especially there in the manifested presence of God, who is holy and righteous and called them to be holy in all that they do. Now, if you look back at verse 17 in our text, you'll see that John changed the tense of the verb in the portion of this verse that he cited. In verse 17, his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. The change in the tense of the verb is not because John is erroneously quoting the verse. Rather, it's because he is simultaneously making a reference to this verse and applying it to Jesus. John and the other disciples saw that Jesus possessed the same zeal for God's house as they had read David did. In the psalm, we see that the animosity and reproach had already been directed towards David because of his zeal for God's house. In Jesus' case, this had not happened yet. But his disciples knew that taking the kind of action he did in the temple would put him in opposition to the ruling officials in Jerusalem. It's like, oh, it's on now. He just did that. Here comes the opposition. They anticipated 
in other words, that animosity and reproach would soon be directed towards him for his righteous zeal. And it did, or as it did in David's case. So they're anticipating it, and they were right. Therefore, when John recounted this event in his gospel, he reflected that anticipation by using the future tense. Zeal for you will consume me. A little foreshadowing. Now let's think about this principle, this idea of zeal for God's house. If you, and you know, again, for us in our day, if you have been born again and are in Christ, then according to Scripture, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. And the church itself, which is manifested on the earth throughout the world in local assemblies like this one, the church itself is referred to as the temple of the living God. Where is God, God's dwelling place today in this age? It is in the church, which, yes, it's not the buildings. The church is the people, right? And when the people congregate as they're commanded to do, not neglecting to do that, they gather together in a local fellowship. That is also the temple of God temple of the Spirit. Corporately and individually, we are God's dwelling place. We must, uh, we think of the Lord Jesus and his zeal for the house of God. He's zealous that God would be honored in his dwelling place. So what should we do? We need to have that same zeal as he did. As he was zealous, so we ought to be zealous for God's honor in God's dwelling place, which is you and the church. You are a member of this body. What would the Lord say to us regarding the sins such as worldliness, materialism, immorality, impurity, discontentment, self-centeredness, pride, you name it. What would he say to us regarding the sins that we tolerate in our hearts and in our lives, in our attitudes and in our activities, in our homes and in our church? Take these things away. Remove them. So how should we respond? Well, we must make our own whip of cords and drive out the sins that we have allowed for too long to come in and set up shop in our lives. Lest the Lord comes and does it himself by chastening us. And he will do this to you who truly belong to him. Because why? Because he loves us and is zealous that God would be honored in each of us individually as his disciples and that God would be honored among all of us together corporately as his church. So we start here, Summit Bible Church, and also with you individually 
In verse 18, we read, So the Jews said to him, uh, What sign do you show us for doing these things? The Jews referred to here would have been the religious authorities and temple officials, most likely some of the Sadducees, perhaps those who were members of the ruling council, along with some of the temple police, noticed that they didn't try to arrest him. It's possible that they took the approach that they did a little more subtle because they thought maybe he might be a prophet. I mean, John the Baptist has been ministering in the region. And again, you remember, they sent a delegation to him. That would have been just a few weeks prior to this. Uh, what's going on? Who are you? To John the Baptist. So now you have another, oh, there's one here in the temple. Maybe he's a prophet. What sign do you show us? However, because they had such an overinflated view of their own importance, nothing short of a miracle on demand on their own terms would convince them that Jesus had a greater say than they did on how things ought to be done in the temple. That was their turf, all right? Uh, we're in charge. Who are you? You got like some miracle you can do right now? So they asked Jesus what miraculous sign he could perform to demonstrate that he had such overriding authority. Jesus then provides them with the following answer, which presents them with a direct challenge. We're not talking hypotheticals here. Verse 19, Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Now, hey, there's that word temple again. Behind this, so again, in our English Bible, just says temple. The word translated as temple here, as well as in the next two verses, is not the same word as the one in 14 and 15. In these verses, the word used refers specifically to the sacred temple building itself. More specific, more narrow definition is referring to the temple building itself. The officials asked for a sign. Jesus told them to go ahead and destroy this temple. And he would then raise it up in three days. By that statement, Jesus foretold right at the outset of his public ministry what would be, in fact, his greatest sign. And what was that? His death and his resurrection. As John explains in verse 21, Jesus was speaking about the temple of his body. However, the Jews with whom he spoke did not perceive this based on their response to him. And by the way, neither did Jesus' disciples in that moment. Didn't click with them either. Said, this temple, like, I see one temple. So if I refer to myself and I say, Dest I don't want you to, but destroy this instrument, and in three days I will put it together again, you might be thinking, there's one. Okay, we'll take the literal instrument that's right there. They don't realize you don't know. Am I speaking figuratively? figuratively? So Jesus said temple, meaning the temple building. He says this temple, they were thinking, I would say naturally thinking. They didn't perceive what he was really telling them. And his disciples didn't either in that moment. And John says in verse 22 that the disciples themselves did not understand until when? After Jesus' resurrection. Only then did they make the connection with what he said here. 
And then the response from the Jews, they said in verse 20, in verse 20, the Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? Now, there are two different ways this, the first part of their response could be translated. The first way is what the ESV translating committee went with, which is what we just read. The second way, they did include in a footnote. In your Bible, usually, sometimes they'll have those little footnotes, and they'll show an alternative translation of that part of the verse. The second, that second alternative translation, they provide in a footnote, and it is as follows. This temple was built 46 years ago. Now, again, the way it is and normally or in our translation, it, it seems to make sense. But that second translation is actually most likely the correct one in what they actually said. This temple was built 46 years ago. The officials used the same word for temple as the one Jesus used. So they're, they're talking about the actual temple building, not about the wider temple precincts, which, by the way, were a long work in progress, still being renovated, expanded, even to that day. So a lot of people think they're saying, hey, this, all of this has been taken like 46 years, and it's still not done. And you're saying, tear it down, you'll build it in three days? But that's not what they said to him. They're referring to the literal temple, which happened to be built 46 years ago from that point. The temple building itself was actually built in just a year and a half as part of a reconstruction project initiated by King Herod I, a.k.a. Herod the Great, like the build. And he did this in an effort to gain support from his Jewish subjects. The completion of the reconstructed temple was 46 years prior to the event in our text. And the point, the point the officials are making in that response to Jesus and saying, this temple was built 46 years ago. The point they're making was that the temple itself was an exceptionally well-built structure. It's a remarkable structure. It's been standing strong for 46 years. They thought that him rebuilding such a marvelous work of architecture, and it was, I mean, you saw the model, rebuilding such a marvelous work of architecture in just three days, they thought that was absurd. Are you kidding me? Because they didn't realize, or they, they ended up misunderstanding what he was saying because they didn't realize that he was speaking about the temple of his body. However, the sign he was actually promising would be, in fact, far greater than building a large stone structure in a very short amount of time. He would allow himself to be killed. And then, on the third day of his burial, he would raise himself from the dead, proving that he is the divine Son of God who has life in himself and who has the power and authority to lay down his life and to take it up again. That's power. That is doing the impossible. There is no other explanation. Now, as I said earlier, John explains, verse 22, that he and the other disciples did not understand what Jesus meant by this statement until after his resurrection. Verse 22, when therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. When John and the other disciples saw Jesus raised from the dead, 
then the meaning and significance of Jesus' statement here at the outset of his public ministry became clear to them. And they believed it. John specifically said what? That they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Well, we heard the word that he spoke, but he said they also believed the scripture. The scripture John most likely is referring to, it could have been Psalm 16, 9. That would be a likely reference. Psalm 16, 9, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, to the grave, or let your Holy One see corruption. John also may have been referring to Isaiah 53 in this passage in which it is said, yet, speaking of the coming servant of the Lord, who is the Messiah, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. Or when his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Death would not be the end of him. He would be risen, resurrected. Jesus, in other words, in giving this statement that he did, he knew what his mission was. According to the Father's infinite wisdom and predetermined plan, Jesus had first come to what? He is the promised king. He is the son of David. He is the one who's going to restore the kingdom of Israel and reign over the earth and righteousness. But he didn't come for that just yet. He first came to give his life as a ransom for many, to bear the sin of his people and to suffer the wrath of God in their place so that they might, through faith in him, be reconciled to God and receive forgiveness of sin, everlasting life, and a glorious future in his coming kingdom. If he did not do that, there would be no kingdom, no people in that kingdom. He came first to be what John the Baptist referred to him as the Lamb of God who would take away sin, the sin of his people, so that they might inherit the glorious kingdom that he would bring upon his second return. We'll close there. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this, this text, this reminder of what our Lord had done in the temple, in this place that you had called your people to gather before you to worship. We thank you for giving us the opportunity to reflect upon the righteous and holy character of Christ Jesus, our Lord, and we pray that you would Give us the same zeal. Help us to have the same zeal for your honor in our personal, private lives, in our, the public spheres in which we interact with others, in which people see us, and also in our, our congregation as we gather together to worship you. Maybe remove the sin that impedes our devotion to you and our worship of you. Help us to have a zeal for holiness. We know that you've called us to be holy as you are holy. And we know that you paid the greatest cost to make that even possible. You sent your son into this world. You gave him and he came willingly to die in our place for our sins so that 
by doing that, he might redeem us from the curse, from the penalty of our sin. And in his resurrection, in the power of his life, he gives life to us. He has reconciled us to you. He has granted us forgiveness of all our sins. He has released us from our guilt. And in him, we are counted as righteous in your sight. And we have the hope of glory. Help us to live in light of that here and now. May that be a driving factor of our zeal to honor you in everything that we do. Help us to take the whip to the sin in our heart and our attitudes, our thoughts, our activities, to drive it out that we might be holy and pleasing and acceptable in our conduct before you and be a great representatives of you in this world as we proclaim the gospel. Pray that you would prepare us now for our time of observing the Lord's Supper in which we commemorate our Lord's sufficient, once-for-all atoning sacrifice for us. In his name we pray, amen.